no outsider can or should try to fix or change Haiti. Outsiders and Americans historically have always tried to change Haiti. And whenever a change has come from a foreigner, from an American, from an outsider, all it's done is circumvented local culture in ways that they have created that are really effective means for providing for themselves and for stewarding their environment and having justice done on a local level. A lot of the issues that Haiti is suffering right now are caused by these mega nations outside of Haiti that are making changes on Haiti's behalf without their consent. Welcome to the Earth Keepers Podcast. This podcast is for people who seek new and better ways to love and care for the Earth. It's a podcast for anyone who is deeply concerned about the harm being done to the environment on a local and global level. It's a podcast that builds community and connection between people of like heart and mind, people who believe that Earth care should be integrated into every aspect of life, and for many in the Earth Keepers community, that includes our spiritual lives. In keeping with our focus on the environmental, political, and economic struggles of the Haitian people, we'll be talking with Ryan Robinson and David Sanon of a development organization called Convit Haiti. Convit Haiti was founded jointly by a group of Americans and Haitians. They continue to work together to support family health, local business development, and environmentally sustainable practices to meet such needs as clean water, sanitation, and productive farming. Guided by the principle of Convit, which in the Creole language means working together toward common goals, the organization aims to help people to hold on to hope, even when circumstances look as discouraging as they do today in Haiti. In our conversation, Ryan will be offering his own views, as well as translating for David. Welcome, friends, to the Earth Keepers podcast. David Ryan, welcome to the podcast. We're glad you guys can join us today and talk to us a bit about what is going on in Haiti in terms of creation care, earth care. Let's maybe orient our listeners. Tell us about what it is you're doing, where you're living, and what your role is with Conbi Haiti. Ryan, let's start with you. All right. Thank you, Forrest. I am glad to be here on this podcast. We love your vision. I met you when my wife Stephanie was in your master's program and actually I had the privilege of meeting you at the beginning and the end of her program and it was a joy to witness that experience. I am in the States right now on the Gulf Coast of Alabama and I'm one of the co-founders of Columbia Haiti with Stephanie and four of our Haitian friends, one being David, who is the director of our environment branch. So, David? Hi, my name is David Sannon. It is a pleasure for me to be here on this podcast with you. I am one of the founding members of Komi Haiti. And I am on the central coast of Maui, Haiti. And I am happy to be here sharing with you about what we do. David, could you tell us more about what Kumbit Haiti does in general? What's the general work they're committed to doing in Haiti? Yeah, Kumbit Haiti is a lot of things. It is a lot of things and we do a lot of things, but the basic essence of Kumbit Haiti is hope. 
And it's really important what we do and how we work. And how we organized the actual organization is that we have three branches. We have the business branch, the family branch, and the environmental branch. And some of our ministries slash programs that we run are things like our kids' ministry, that we have every week, and we have a total of two months of camps between summer and Christmas. We do water projects, all of them starting with a seminar for the community, where the community actually learns about water sanitation hygiene and then votes on which project they would like for their community amongst themselves. And then they build it with our instruction. We also have seminars like business and leadership seminars, health, education, women and youth at risk, all kinds of things. But overall, our goal is in bringing communities together in a way that really empowers them and makes them feel like they're in charge of their own lives. Ryan, I want to pick up on something that you said earlier about you being in Alabama and trying to work with the folks back in Haiti, but it's difficult. Could you explain the circumstances that, first of all, make it hard for you to be doing your work there, but also maybe even the circumstances that are making it harder for people to hope these days? That is a great question, Forrest. It is actually hard for Stephanie and I to be based in the States in this season. We actually lived in Haiti for the larger part of eight years. And it was a difficult transition coming back to the States just because organizationally, we were just growing too much and needed to be based out of the States. Things are really difficult in Haiti. There's a huge burden on Haitian leadership, especially with the culmination of COVID hitting on top of uh, political crises with gangs and cholera epidemics starting up again. It's really uh, quite a difficult scenario for everyone, but especially for leaders on the ground who are sharing the same burden, but also have the additional burden of their staff and their friends and their heart for their community. So from a support role being in the States, we're just doing as much as we can to educate people on what's going on in Haiti, as well as trying to be there for our friends and our staff so that they know the hope that is possible. And they also feel like they have the resources and support so that they're not falling into a pit of despair, as we could say, while they're also trying to reach out to their community. We're trying to keep them our friends in Haiti, out of the pit so they can also do the work they need to do and be helping their communities around them. David, this question is for you. I'd really love to know more about what you see as perhaps the major struggles or challenges in Haiti from an environmental perspective. And then also, what are some of the things that you and your organization are doing to maybe address some of those challenges? Yeah, So I want to thank you for asking that question about the environment. That is actually a really big question. We have a lot of history there, and there are a lot of complex challenges within that question. There are a lot of components involved in having a holistic approach to resolving any sort of environmental crisis that we have. Yes, so there are actually a lot of components in Haitian society that are affected by the environment. We have churches and schools and governmental institutions and organizations and businesses 
agriculture programs and horticulture programs on a farming on a small scale. All of them we try to address simultaneously, and I'm going to go into each of those now. Yeah, so we have a lot of programs and a lot of outreaches within our three branches of our organization, and we try to address them all in an overlap fashion. And so with our environment programs, we try to reach out into the spheres of family and business, as well as what you would typically consider the environment. First, we work with the community, and everything that we do and all ways that we work, we involve the community first. One of our biggest programs is our WASH program, Water, Sanitation, and Hygiene. We focus on training the community in a sustainable means so that they can actually have replicable and affordable water projects. So these are low-tech water projects. They don't require any outsourced materials or education. It's all stuff that we can buy in any local hardware store. It's stuff that we can just educate the community on. And these are just small tweaks to current existing water projects where when we implement them, they're actually clean water sources. And everything that we do, we educate the community first because we've seen that is just by far the best way that we can actually instill hope, which is kind of our foundational tenet in everything that we do. We also work with teams of farmers on proper and sustainable farming practices. So there's a lot of farming done in Haiti. It used to be a culture of all subsistence farming, and that was kind of removed in the late 1900s. So now we have large-scale farms that don't really know how to work the land like they used to. And so we actually work with agriculturalists to go to different regions and educate the local farmers and the local population on soil health and on crops and crop rotation and ways that the farms can actually be more efficient while protecting the land. We also work with rural farmers and rural communities um, and help them with their transportation structure. So there's actually several communities that we work with where there literally is not a road to get to those communities. Beforehand, they would walk or go by donkey and they would have ropes on the steep parts and they would just pull themselves up by the rope while they're hiking the mountain on the steep parts. And so we've actually helped these communities organize themselves so that we can help create a road so they can actually get at least a motorcycle and sometimes even a truck to those communities. When we do a water project in these communities, we actually have to bring in water just to do the project. And then so actually building the road has helped us to create water projects in these communities. And the last big program that we are doing is an initiative to get into the local schools. And so the biggest thing that we've seen with the schools and the youth is an overall lack of hope. They see the political issues and they don't really know how to reconcile them in their mind and they're too young to really see that things will always be difficult. But it's about how you address the situation and what tools you have in your belt to be able to approach it. And so what we do is we educate the youth and the community to give them hope. We give them tools so that they can succeed, so that they can make their lives better, so that they can move forward with hope. So... I have a question for you, Ryan. I noticed that you've both been referring to more of a holistic approach to the work you do, and you're not separating the environmental work that you're doing from other aspects of life in terms of social organizing or education or what have you. Is that really a tenet of Kombiheti, that development isn't done just along the lines of one particular dimension of life, but it's maybe something that embraces all of those factors that include the environment? Yes, Forrest, that is absolutely true. We 
try to infuse our stewardship of the environment and everything that we do. Actually, the first vision that we had for Home Beat Haiti was based off of the Old Testament gleaning laws. And so for those of you who aren't familiar, and I'll have to re-familiarize myself with this as I'm saying it, basically poor communities who did not have access to resources to feed themselves, they were not given handouts. They were given opportunities to work in a way that would allow them to work quite hard, actually, with opportunities they otherwise would not have just to be able to provide food for themselves. And this is a way where those who had ample ability to feed themselves and the resources to pay for their needs could actually contribute work opportunities for those who don't have it. And so all of our programs, in a way, are based off of those gleaning laws where they're not handout-based, but of course you have to have a starting point for people who can't you know, skip multiple steps on the way to developing their own community or their families. And so we have a lot of programs that have ample overlap. For example, our kids program will often have environmental educators come in, David being one, but also outside teams will come in and educate on trash and recycling. Haiti has a big trash problem where there aren't municipal trash services, and there are just now starting to be some recycling programs, but we don't have any in our city. And so we'll actually take the kids from our kids program, we'll walk around the community at least once a quarter, and we'll educate them on trash, recycling, on waste, what's organic material, what's not organic material, and then we'll actually go and clean the community with them. And this is on top of you know programs that we already are running on a regular basis, like our water sanitation and hygiene programs. A lot of our businesses that we incubate and also advise on We encourage local entrepreneurs to start businesses that actually help clean up the environment and use waste from the environment and turn whatever waste there is, let's just say plastic bottles, turning plastic bottles into a means of water collection or some sort of cool gadget that I can't even imagine because some Haitian child is just innovating thing after thing. So we try to overlap all three of those spheres as much as possible because we've just seen that that holistic approach is just really the only way that you can simultaneously uplift a community at the same time. David, I wonder if this idea of holistic thinking applies also in the arena of justice. I mean, I guess I'm wondering, are there ways that social justice issues are interconnected with environmental issues in a way that you just can't actually separate them? So to respond to your question about justice and the environment and how social justice is related to environmental justice, in Haiti, they're basically one and the same. Um, I'll start off with an example of water, finding a water source. For many, this is an example of justice and environmental stewardship. The government only really thinks about the big cities. It's almost as if rural communities don't even exist. We're talking about Port-au-Prince and Cap Haitian and Guanaives. And the community that we live in has several hundred thousand people between our city and the mountain communities behind us, but it still is basically not even on the map. So we work with communities to show them that not only do we know that they exist, but that the world knows that they exist and that they deserve justice. 
We educate these communities on environmental problems. We help them create the water and sanitary sources that they need. And with this, education is the key. This is kind of the pinnacle for all things. We're telling them with education that not only do you have the ability to learn, but you have the ability to resolve your crisis. You are the person who is working for your future, and that's basically resilience. And we look at this as holistic justice. Some of the other things that we do, if there's an emergency like a hurricane or an earthquake or even times of famine or times of drought, and we'll actually, with some of the emergency situations like a hurricane, we'll actually go house to house and tell people what the problem is that's coming. So a lot of these mountain communities don't have cell service or just are so disconnected from their country and the world that they don't actually know what impending inclement weather is. And so we actually go house to house and we'll tell them what the upcoming emergency is, how they can prepare to actually keep themselves safe. And then we spread the message, we tell them how they can protect themselves, and we actually bring them in the journey to educate their neighbors so that they're a part of protecting their community, protecting their environment, protecting their assets, as in their goats and their farms and their donkeys. And we help them to prepare to stay safe, and that is justice. Justice basically is when people are given a chance to provide what they need. We bring justice through hope, through water, through education. We bring justice through partnership with these communities. We give them water by means of educating and helping them to realize that they're capable of creating their own water source, that they're capable of pooling their own resources together so they can actually create their own water source for themselves. And that is justice. Hello, Earthkeepers. Did you know that for every human on Earth, there are 200 million insects? And did you know that when bees are out gathering nectar, sometimes they fall asleep in flowers? This is James Amidon, executive producer of this podcast and executive director of Circlewood. Learning facts like these isn't just interesting. It gives us the kind of ecological knowledge that helps us in our everyday Earthkeeping. And if that's something you're interested in, Circlewood has an upcoming online course called How Creation Works, Science for Everyday Earthkeepers. The purpose of the course is to empower people like you with scientific understanding that can help them understand and care for creation. Now, of course, you don't have to be a scientist to care for nature, but knowing some of the foundational science can help us care in more informed and helpful ways and can help us recognize just how awesome the world is. There'll be no exams, no lab reports, just a guided introduction to the science of earthkeeping from a teacher, Chris Overland, who is passionate about making science accessible to everyone. He'll help you understand and apply scientific principles from earth science, chemistry, and biology to real-life environmental challenges. And you'll walk away from the course with real ideas you can apply to your current work and life. And you'll also grow in your relationship with the world and its creator. The course starts Tuesday, April 11th, and runs for seven weeks. It's just $95, and we'll hope you'll join us. If you want to learn more, simply go to www.circlewood.online backslash education. Thanks, and now back to the conversation. This is a question for both of you, and it has to do with the fact that you are both among a younger generation 
These days, of course, we're seeing more and more the impact of climate change in such a way that we really can't you know, deny that change is coming and coming faster than we'd hoped. But of course, also there's greater awareness, especially among your generation, that the future looks difficult. I wonder if you could comment on how you think the, the current awareness of climate crisis and the current understanding of where we're going affects the mindset of younger folks like you. Ryan, let's start with you. All right. Yeah, so great question. We do have a lot of understanding in climate change. It's interesting, no matter where we travel in the States, we always find pockets that believe that climate change doesn't exist. It's hard for my generation to fathom those who don't really understand that. And there are those in my generation who also don't understand or don't see or don't believe in climate change. But as a young person looking at, you know, where I'm going to live for the rest of my life, I am looking at, you know, maps of where tidal rise will be the greatest. And supposedly the Gulf Coast where I live will be one of the hardest hit places in the world by means that are just beyond my own understanding. And so climate change is definitely something that we cannot escape thinking about just in my generation and also with our organization. Let me ask David the same question. How has your generation, David, been impacted more in terms of their thinking about the future? Um, so I'll respond to your question about climate change, starting with Haiti and our stage of development. We might have a different focus on climate change. Things are just still really difficult for the average person. So for my parents' and grandparents' generation, they really believed much more in stewarding the environment, so their focus was more on planting trees. My generation just wants to cut down trees. Those who are younger than me, they just want to cut down trees. So we're really fighting environmental justice, and one of the big issues is education. Not everyone in my generation, those younger than me, knows why environmental work and stewardship is more difficult than our generations before us know it to be. But part of the issue is really just an education and that the younger generations don't really know Haiti's history. So that's an issue because, you know, Haiti has worked a long time to cultivate and steward the environment. And it's a recent phenomenon that we actually have had issues with deforestation and with actually being able to provide holistic food sources like the implementation of rice in a big way in the 1980s. So kids in my generation and after my generation don't really believe in school anymore. They just don't see the value as much because they haven't seen it accomplished much for those in my generation. So my generation would never miss a day of school because our future was hinged on it, but that's not really what the kids who are younger than my generation are living 
Right now, they don't really see the need for that as much. And so that's really been a big issue with climate change because we just want to focus on the things that are more imminent, like surviving today. Yeah, I think that brings up a really good point about survival. I think, you know, when it comes to caring about climate change issues, caring about earth care issues, I wonder if it's more difficult to pay attention to those things when your actual concerns are about survival. You know, when the health of the environment is a great idea, you agree with that value, and yet, you know, your bigger concern is providing for your family, is feeding your kids, making enough money just to get by. Is that a tension that you see Haitians facing? And I'll ask that of you, Ryan. Yeah, so that's a great question. I don't see how that could not affect every Haitian who's not living in the upper echelon. I would have a hard time commenting on what the life is like for the average Haitian. Maybe Ryan in his first five years living in Haiti. But after that, I definitely have learned that no amount of time living in Haiti would actually allow me to understand the plight of the Haitian and what living is like. I will say that for me, being in those environments in that situation, I mean, the bottom two tiers of Maslow's hierarchy of needs was basically all you think about. Food, water, shelter, clothing. It's sometimes for a foreigner living in Haiti with immense privilege, with an American passport, with access to friends and funding sources and credit cards, and an easy you know, airplane purchase out it's still really easy for the foreigner living in Haiti to focus on just daily survival. Things just take so much more work to live in Haiti where even our organization doesn't have city power. We have solar panels and a backup generator, but we actually aren't even wired to the electrical grid because there's no electricity running through those wires. And so there's no point in connecting to the grid because there's nothing out of it. It's an expense that we don't benefit from. And so when you're thinking about literally all of the essentials to surviving, there's just not much room in the psyche and the human brain to have a capacity to think about something beyond that. So I can't speak for Haitians, but I will say in my experience, it's really hard to get out of that which is why it's, I guess, more essential for me as the American with the organization to be in the States so I can be you know, pouring resources into our organization, into our leadership, providing education opportunities and advocate opportunities like David sharing on this podcast. That's really what I've seen has been a way for me to utilize my role in a way that really helps Haitians who are in Haiti without visas to be connected to the world in a way where they can address the things that they care about beyond just daily survival. I want to ask the same question of David. I wonder in terms of how you go about educating people about the environment, for example, how do you actually help them to care when their focus is maybe more on basic necessities? How do you help them to care about the environment? Yeah, so that is a really great question. Where we are early in the year 2023 is a really difficult time for Haiti, and it really has been for the last few years. 
Yeah. So to start with this question's response, I've been working uh, with Columbia Haiti since 2010. And even with other communities before then, before I started with Columbia Haiti, but for these few communities that I work in now, I've been in these communities for over eight years, some for as long as 12. And that's really given me trust in the community so that they believe in my message, they know my heart, they know that I'm consistently working with these communities to educate and to empower them and to show them that they have an opportunity for a better future. But that's a hard sell because the lives of members in these communities are so difficult. They're just thinking, how do I live for today? So they're making charcoal, but doing so does not plant trees or help their circumstances. Making charcoal will feed them for a day, but it'll take away two days from their future. People are just living for today, not for tomorrow or the day after tomorrow. They make charcoal, they sell charcoal, they go buy some rice and oil and beans, they make dinner, then they wake up and they make charcoal. And the process repeats itself. People in those difficult circumstances living day to day, they have a hard enough time focusing on their own basic needs like water sources and food sources, especially when the government doesn't provide municipal services. And most people are paying on a daily basis for water if they can afford it. And if not, they're spending multiple hours a day just getting one or two buckets of water that they have to live on that aren't clean and will probably make them sick and possibly kill them. And they know the risk, but that's the only option that they have. So this is a time that's really difficult. Everything in Haiti is just very tight. And it's been difficult for such a long time that people are having a hard time holding on. And so what we're trying to do is just tell them, keep holding on, there is hope. And in the meantime, we're going to help you create the water sources that you need, the food sources that you need. We're going to start to think outside the box. You think it's hot now, it's going to keep getting hot. But the reason that it's hot is because we don't have trees. And if we were to have trees in our community, it would actually reduce the temperature by about 10 degrees on average. So imagine what that would be like. So instead of cutting down charcoal to feed yourself for a day, let's plant trees and figure out other means for cooking and providing for ourselves that actually allow us to work one day and you know have a day off and have a future after today. So that's what we're working on, but it's an uphill battle. One of the issues that's getting more attention, especially since the COP27 conference, is the fact that nations like Haiti suffer enormous consequences of climate change, even though wealthier nations are much more responsible for causing the problems in the first place. Is that one of the issues that most Haitian people are actually aware of? That's a great question. One thing that I found about Haitians that I absolutely love is that they are incredibly connected to the world. They're just, you know, a 90-minute flight from Miami. They're in the middle of the Caribbean. They're in the middle of the Americas. And Haitians can talk to you about American politics, Canadian politics, Brazilian politics on top of Brazilian soccer, on top of European politics and also European soccer. (laughs) They are watching the world from this little island nation And they're looking at everything that's going on and seeing how the world is affecting them and how they're, for the most part, just stuck on this little island without much trade to the world, with hands from the world blocking them and keeping them where they're at. And so this is a hard question because 
Haitians really are so connected to the world. And with Western media, they're seeing what's going on. They have friends across the world. They're on Facebook with their family members who are in the States or who are in France or England or working across the world. And they're watching what's going on and seeing how they're being impacted and affected by these issues without much global social power to make a difference. And so they're really at the hands of the diaspora in the States and abroad and non-Haitian politicians abroad to make decisions over Haiti. And so they really have very little power of what's going on in their country because they have these mega giant countries standing over top of them saying, we know what's good for your country. But they're there saying, we know what's going on with the world and that we're receiving injustice and we're working towards not receiving injustice and making a difference where we can. Yeah. Well, here's a question for David then. I'm wondering, David, what do you think ought to be done on the part of wealthier nations to help countries like Haiti to address damage already done by climate change or helping them to prepare for climate disasters to come? Un pays qui gagne plus qu'on capable capable aider Haïti à So yeah, how countries with wealthier status can help Haiti. They can really help Haiti leave their circumstances through sustainable development. So one of the big things here is helping us to implement local production and not relying on imports. Help us to plant a holistic food source and a holistic diet domestically so we're not relying on imported foods, so that we're getting away from the white rice, which is recently a phenomenon that has turned into Haiti's staple. Help us to get back to our farming roots. So my dad was actually a, a farmer. Um, and his era, every community had the ability to provide for themselves. So this was before Haiti's first dictator in the 1950s. Every community in Haiti had the ability to support their entire community and to provide all the sustenance that they needed within their community just through farming. And since then, and since the dictatorship, and with foreign intervention, largely from the states, so many industries in Haiti have been killed. So Haiti used to live on a diet of mostly vegetables, and now we rely on white rice. Most of it is imported from the states. We used to have a thriving peanut industry, and because of a U.S. surplus where peanuts were actually brought to Haiti, it actually killed our peanut industry, and so so many farms were destroyed, peanut farms were destroyed by the import of donated peanuts where people didn't have to purchase or they had a really cheap price on peanuts. Um, it killed our peanut industry. Same with chickens, same with pigs. And there are so many other examples about how foreign involvement has destroyed our means of providing for ourselves. So if somebody, you know, if the average person has a hard enough time, you know, paying for food, and then all of a sudden they have a free food source, they're going to go to that free food source so they can get ahead or have a break. But those little breaks are actually killing our industries and killing our ability to provide for ourselves. So being able for us to support our own schools, for us to be able to support our own local infrastructure is huge. Right now, one of the biggest things causing insecurity are the gangs in Haiti. And 
the reason that we're not really able to move forward is just because we need training for the police and we need more police. But what the UN is talking about right now, their intervention is, I believe, almost a billion dollars for them to come in for roughly six months and just physically be there to intervene with the gangs. You know, for a fraction of that cost, we could have a larger budget for our police and we could actually have training for the police so that they would be better equipped to fight gangs. So one of our biggest problems right now is that we don't need a, a huge military foreign presence. We just need better training. We need empowerment for our police. We need more police. We have the ability to fix our own problems. We just need the wealthier countries to stop intervening in ways that actually go against what we need. We need them to help us in ways that we want them to help, in ways that actually are partnering with us to fix our own problems. That's really what we want. So, Ryan, are there ways that people outside of Haiti can help the work of environmental justice and the movement towards sustainability in Haiti? There are so many things that we can do. I think advocacy for Haiti, for Haiti to have equal opportunity and trade and international business, reducing embargoes and visa blockades, and really helping Haiti to be a part of the world is a way that will really help Haitians to have more social capital in the world in a way where they can actually be the ones to address the issues that they want to address. One of the things that we say in our organization is that no outsider can or should try to fix or change Haiti. Outsiders and Americans historically have always tried to change Haiti. And whenever a change has come from a foreigner, from an American, from an outsider, all it's done is circumvented local culture in ways that they have created that are really effective means for providing for themselves and for stewarding their environment and having justice done on a local level. A lot of the issues that Haiti is suffering right now are caused by these mega nations outside of Haiti that are making changes on Haiti's behalf without their consent. And so one of the things that we can do is just to believe in our Haitian brothers and sisters that they have the means and ability to make their country the way that they want it to be. And for us to just support them and partner with them in that. And the key there is partnership. We've been in conversation with David Sunon and Ryan Robinson about their work with Kunbit Haiti. If you want to know more about their work or to find out how you can support their holistic projects in Haiti, go to the show notes for this episode. I'm Forrest Inslee, your podcast host. Our executive producer is James Amadon. Our producer is Dave Wolfers. Forrest Reed is the creator of our original music, and Timothy Connor is our podcast editor. Our research assistant is Alex Megerly, and Jessalyn Gentry is our social media director. Thank you, friends, for listening. And please join us for our next conversation on the Earthkeepers podcast. <laughs>